Today's Skim from the Couch is presented by HBO's The Inspiration Room. As you probably know at The Skim and on this podcast, we are all about sharing the stories of women who inspire us. That is why we partnered with HBO on their Women's History Month initiative, which is called The Inspiration Room. This is a very cool, one-of-a-kind, open-to-the-public exhibition in New York City that brought to life real diaries from women from all walks of life. We went, we participated, we loved it, and we want to tell you more about it. But first, we have to get to this episode. When you tell your own personal story, it has such power to change a heart or open a heart or connect. And I keep saying that right now is a really important time for us to be building bridges to one another. And storytelling is a bridge builder because you find connectiveness through it. I'm Carly Zakin. I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to Skim from the Couch. This podcast is where we go deep on career advice from women who have lived it, from the good stuff like hiring and growing a team, to the rough stuff like negotiating your salary and giving or getting hard feedback. We started the skim from a couch, so what better place to talk it all out than where it began on a couch? Please welcome Sarah Kate Ellis to the couch, live from HBO's Inspiration Room. Sarah Kate is the president and CEO of GLAAD, the nonprofit that uses media to share stories from the LGBTQ community and accelerate acceptance nationwide. But before GLAAD, Sarah Kate built an award-winning career in media. She got a rep for helping launch and turn around major media brands like InStyle, Vogue, and New York Magazine. In 2014, she came aboard GLAAD and helped refocus the advocacy group through a variety of media initiatives and storytelling, which we're going to talk about. Sarah Kate, welcome to the couch. Thank you for having me. Thank you. We are thrilled to have you. So let's jump into it. Skim your resume for us. Oh, gosh. Um, it's getting longer and longer. I'm having trouble keeping it on one page because I'm That's getting older and older. It's going to get real short. Um, but basically, I started my career. I wanted to do something that was um, business-oriented but creative, and I ended up in the magazine world, and I started on the launch, the relaunch of Condé Nast House and Garden and went to New York Magazine and then went to InStyle. And through that, I was always on the business side, which was um, marketing and driving advertising at that time, and then um, really ended up spending about 13 years at Real Simple Magazine, and that was that was launched, um, and then it hit some trouble, not with readers, but with the business community. It got panned when it first launched. All the advertisers pulled out, so it was about sort of relaunching it and repositioning it to the ad community, and I spent about 13 years there, and then I left there as um, the magazine industry started to to have trouble. For me, I'm a builder. I like to create and build. Um, and it wasn't, I wasn't able to in that environment anymore. So I went to another company that was more digitally oriented. Um, and at that time, I, when I was there is when Glad called and asked if I'd come and talk to them. And I did. And the rest is history. Here we are. <laughs> Here we are. So that was a wonderful resume. What's one thing that we can't find out about you from looking on LinkedIn? that my very, very first job was in a factory 
Uh, on, I grew up on Staten Island, and my mother made me work every summer. My parents did. And, um, and I was trying not to work. She would circle things in the paper of jobs when we used to look for jobs in the newspaper. And it, was, it turned out to be a factory on Staten Island that would build the media kits for magazines. So my first summer job was building the media kit for Self Magazine. Isn't that weird? Yes, that is so cool. (laughs) So now that you're president and CEO of Glad Media, what does that job mean? And what does your day-to-day look like? So the the job is really, um, it's twofold for me right now. It's protecting the LGBTQ community and all the progress that we've made. And then the second part of that is fighting for what remains still undone and that we haven't achieved yet. And there's a lot more out there that we haven't achieved than that we have actually have achieved. But people like to talk about wins more than losses. My day to day is we always start, we work on a news cycle. So all the time, that means 24 seven, we start with a morning briefing where we review all the national, international, local and LGBTQ news and see where we think we can have a mark, where we can push forward any sort of stories that we think will help shape the narrative around what's going on. And in the past two years, it's been, you know, frontline combat for us in terms of our rights. Um, And there's been somewhat of a cultural war launched against the LGBTQ community and other many other marginalized organizations or communities, excuse me. And so we've really spent a lot of time locking arms with other communities um, who are also marginalized, which is probably one of the best outgrowths of what we've been experiencing for the past two years is all coming together as one community. And so we go through that every morning and then determine what we're going to work on. And then Every day, as I say, is a brand new day at GLAD. You never know when you answer that phone what is going to be on the other line. And it is sometimes and oftentimes just jaw-dropping what's going on and who's calling and what, what needs to be tended to. So you just said um, you referenced shaping narratives and uh, want to kind of dig into that a little bit because it's so much about your work at GLAD today. But Obviously, before working at GLAD, you had a, a really long career in, in publishing in the magazine world. When did you first discover you were good at shaping narratives? What does that mean to you? You know, I actually discovered it in college, and I went to a women's college in upstate New York called Russell Sage College, and while I was there, they were about to shut down the women's center at a women's college. It's kind of mind-blowing. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. And um, so my friends started to organize, and I decided we needed the, the, the media, because if we organized locally on the college campus, the pressure was going to come from external as well. We needed external pressure. And so I realized at that moment, that if you use media to tell a story, to bring more life to a story, it has more power. And I also at that time read Backlash um, in my college studies and realized that, you know, that analysis of media and the good and the bad and everything in between is is really how we understand the world is through media. And so to have an impact and an influence on that for a community, a marginalized community is critical. So 
you're such a good storyteller that you became a professional one and that you are a published author. Yes. <laughs> and I, I would love to talk about this because I, I yeah. love this story. Um, so in 2011, uh, you published a book with your wife and I would love for your now wife, I would love for you to tell our listeners what the book was about. Sure. So my wife and I, um, I wanted to start a family. This was before marriage equality. So we technically were domestic, domestic partners. Um, and we started down the family road and it took me a while. I had a miscarriage. It took a while. And, and, and the doctors were all saying, you're so healthy. You're so healthy. Meanwhile, I wasn't getting pregnant and I finally did get pregnant and I had a, a miscarriage. And, um, and so when she, my, my wife is a musician, and when she came off the road from, from touring, I said, you need to start, because she was, she's a year older than me. And so we both started trying to get pregnant. And the first time we both tried, um, we both got pregnant <laughs> on the same day. That is insane. It the was audience nuts. is just gasping right Out now. Of all the scenarios you guys must have talked about, did that one ever come up? It really, it never even occurred to us. I kept saying, two ovens, one bun. That was like my <laughs> chant. Two ovens, one bun. We got to get this done. Yeah. And um, so we never expected that. And, and then what happened was I was working at Real Simple and the managing editor, um, this woman, Kristen Van Ogtrop, who's a wonderful writer, um, I was telling her and I said, I'm pregnant. And she knew I was trying. And uh, I said, I'm finally pregnant. And she was excited, and I said, but there's a twist. And she said, what's the twist? And I said, Kristen, that's my wife's name, is pregnant too. She said, what are you talking about? <laughs> and so about two hours later, in my office, the phone rang, and it was Kristen. And she said, I want you and Kristen to think about, Kristen Van Ogtrop, I want you and your wife, or then partner, to think about having us cover the story and follow you over your three trimesters, over your trimesters. How excited were you for this offer? Not at all. I was, no, I, I took it home. I, I brought it to my Kristen and said, you know, she said, I think it's really good. And I said, but it's so invasive. Like this is, I've worked really hard for this pregnancy and especially like a controlling, ambitious woman, like, Trying to get pregnant is very can be very debilitating, um, and those who have tried and 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 are still trying know exactly what I'm talking about because it's completely out of your control, um, and so I I really wanted to keep it private. But then I did know, real simple, at that moment in time, reached 8 million women across the country and mostly in the middle of the country. And I thought, you know, I I'm bringing children into this world. I better help make this world a better place. And, and so we did agree to it. And, um, and then the woman who was writing the story said, I think this would be a wonderful book. I was like, Oh God, stop already. <laughs> so we talked about that and we did agree to that as well. But I remember when the issue came out, cause they followed us and then they, they had the story in the May mother's day issue and the issues arrived, I was still on maternity leave, arrived on my front porch at my house. And I literally had a, I thought, what did I do? It's so revealing. It's, it, it was a different time. We didn't have social well, media I'm then. I'm actually fascinated because we were talking a little bit before in the green room. 
you were very private about yourself at work for a very long time and you actually were not openly out at work. Um, so to go from that to now saying, come into the delivery room with me, uh, I would just love to kind of hear when you think about sort of the two versions of yourself, um, you know, back when you first started working Mm -hmm. and then to actually become a published author about your own personal family life. Um, how do you reflect upon that now? Yeah. Um, you know, I didn't, I was out to friends and my family members um, when I came out in, in my early 20s. I didn't come out at work until my, I might have been 32 or 33. And a big part of that was that I thought I would be labeled as a lesbian as opposed to the ambitious businesswoman. And I wanted a career and I didn't want to, I didn't want, um, that part of my life to overshadow my ambition and um, or get in the way of it in any way, shape or form. And so when I, I, I felt like I could be setting myself back and in the magazine business, especially the fashion beauty business, it was okay to be a gay man. It was not okay to be a lesbian and it was very different. And um, I was, I was very petrified of that. And, I got to a point when I was actually starting at Real Simple and I thought, I can't get any further in my career until I start to become truthful because I'm kind of a liar. And who's going to trust a liar to run their business? And I wasn't making up stories, but I was definitely, what did you do this week? And I went, I went to a few bars. Oh, did you have fun? And I wouldn't name the bars. I would change the pronouns. Like, you know, it wasn't straight out lying. I'm not a liar by nature, but it was definitely trying to cover this. And it took so much energy and I would get nervous before going out. What if I bumped into somebody? It took a lot of energy. And, um, and then I remember blurting it out when I was starting at Real Simple and it was a a table full of women. Someone asked me who I was dating and I just bleh. And and then I, I know I turned red and I was like, oh, it's all over now. And you know what? The sun came up the next day. And to be honest with you, I think that's when I really started to flourish at work because I wasn't spending all this energy and time covering up who I was. I was being myself. And through doing that, brought more integrity, more genuineness to my work. So it was actually the exact opposite of my fear happened is that my career ended up taking off because I was, I wasn't wasting time on trying to hide who I was. I was spending more energy on working hard. Let's take a quick break to tell you all more about the Inspiration Room. So earlier this month, HBO created a temporary public exhibition that featured actual diaries of women past and present, and it included ours. Um, So it was designed to celebrate diversity and complexity of the female narrative in honor of Women's History Month, because HBO wants to make sure that women get the representation they deserve, which is why we participated. So when you get there, there are all these diaries. Um, Some are from influencers, some are from women throughout history, and some are 
from everyday women. We are so excited to partner with HBO on this initiative, and we recorded this episode of Skimmed from the Couch from inside the Inspiration Room. But that's not all we did. Uh, When we submitted our diary for this room, we really reflected on um, what gets behind the new products that we create at the Skim and a fear of failure. Uh, When we started the company, Everything was possible because it was just two of us and a mission. And then you grow and there are more people involved and the fear of failure begins to hold you back. Um, So the decision to create our book, How to Skim Your Life, um, was something that had been on our minds for a long time. And we finally had to put that fear of failure aside to go for it. So learn more about HBO's The Inspiration Room at HBO.com. So... In 2014, you left the magazine world and you came on board at GLAAD as its president and CEO. For those that, you know, aren't as familiar with GLAAD, can you just walk us through the mission of GLAAD today? Absolutely. So GLAAD was founded actually in New York City 33 years ago, um, and it was during the AIDS crisis. And our first protest was in front of the New York Post and their coverage of gay men during the AIDS crisis because they were villainizing gay men. And so um, we quickly realized that we needed to correct the record on gay. It was specifically gay coverage at that time, too, on gay coverage in media and news and journalism, but we also needed to start lobbying Hollywood to show our stories, to humanize us as a community and as people. And so we quickly opened a chapter in Los Angeles. We're very known for our LA work or Hollywood work of getting stories told and the will and graces of the world and the Ellens of the world and all of those big significant moments. Um, and, but we still, our job is to accelerate acceptance for LGBTQ people. And that means changing culture. So we're cultural change agents. What's very interesting about the today and now is that culture used to be a one-way road right out of Hollywood into our living rooms. That is not the case. Culture is everywhere now. There are culture makers everywhere. You ladies are culture makers. And you know, I was at the World Economic Forum in Davos. All the CEOs were ta- were literally standing up and saying, profits without purpose are meaningless and you cannot continue to do business this way. And so their CEOs are now culture agents. You know, so culture agents are everywhere. Social media stars, YouTube stars. Um are all cultural change agents now. And so we work across all of that now, whereas before it used to be news and journalism and Hollywood, which we still are, they're the centerpiece of our work. We work with all culture cultural change agents to accelerate acceptance. And we do it against uh, across social justice movements too. Um, we d- it's not just LGBTQ, but it's for people of color. It's for um, people with disabilities. Um, it's for immigrants because we in the LGBTQ community represent all those communities as well. And so that's really important. Why did you change industries? I mean, I, I think the, the connective tissue here is that you are a storyteller, which we've talked about. Why, why leave the medium of storytelling that you were in to do this in a different way? I think there's a number of reasons. The number one reason is that it's so meaningful and purposeful to me. And I saw how um, my story in Real Simple Magazine, our book, um, 
all had this really powerful effect and I got so many notes and, and, and replies about how powerful it was and meaningful to people. And I thought, wow, can you imagine doing this on a larger platform that wasn't about me, that was about other people and other, um, issues, you know, and, and that we could take on in a bigger way. And I think also, you know, glad, um, when, when I did write the book, um, the funny piece of this was that I panicked too when the book was coming out and they were like, oh, okay, well now we're booking the book tour. And I thought, oh my goodness, we're going to the middle of the country. Are people, what are they going to say to us? Like, I felt really vulnerable and I called GLAD. And I went down to the GLAD office and they helped me. They put us through trainings and how to talk about issues and how to, if there was opposition in the, in the bookstore, if someone started yelling, how to handle that. Did you encounter that? We didn't, fortunately. What we did, it was the beginning of um, online comments before you knew not to read them. And Oof. I did read yeah. them. And that wasn't pretty. Um, <laughs> But no, I didn't, never face to face, fortunately. So we are literally in a room surrounded by inspiration. Um, As part of HBO's Because of Her campaign, we have all of these amazing stories from women in different points of their career, in different uh, places around the world. Um, When you think about the work that you've done with GLAAD, what are some of the stories or the campaigns that really stand out? Oh, wow. I mean, you know, when you tell your own personal story, it has such power to change a heart or open a heart or connect. And I keep saying that right now is a really important time for us to be building bridges to one another. And storytelling is a bridge builder because you find connectiveness through it. Um, And you don't, and, and everybody has such amazing stories that I think that that really inspires me every day. In terms of the stories that I've seen really catapult, um, there was a moment where there was a woman um, who was on a cruise with her then partner, because the marriage wasn't um, legal then, and three kids. She had a, a brain aneurysm, and the boat had to pull in to Florida. Florida didn't recognized same-sex couples, and this woman was then taken away from her would-be wife and three children, and they were not allowed to go visit her, and she died. And so, you know, President Obama referenced that story during the marriage equality fight, and I think that was one of the more powerful stories that we were able to show what bad legislation does to real people. And when we're able to do that, we had a woman um, who wanted to be a Boy Scout leader for her son, who was a lesbian, and they wouldn't let her do it. And so we got involved in that. We elevated her story and then really worked behind the scenes to move um, both the sponsors of the Boy Scouts and the Boy Scouts um, organizing power to 
move past that to let LGBTQ people in. And that has happened since. But she was really powerful because she was an everyday mom. She was a mom wanting to be a mom, not a lesbian mom. She was a mom. And and it really struck people. And so I think when you're able to take these stories and really show how discrimination or anti-LGBTQ policies really affects us on a daily everyday level, it's very powerful. So much of um, the advocacy work that GLAD is known for has been with Hollywood um, and um, in the entertainment field. How have the challenges changed, if at all, from when you joined to what they are now? We're now in a different climate politically. How have you seen it change? Oh, it's changed dramatically in Hollywood. when we first started as an organization, we were begging for just one LGBTQ character in one story. Um, and we do an annual report, uh, both a studio responsibility index, so measures movies, and then we do where we are on TV, and that measures television. And it's just light years away from where we first started as an organization. In the, I would say in the past five years since I've been there, I've seen it even grow more. And I think that, believe it or not, in this day and age that we're living in, where people are being pitted against each other and where people are, you know, there's a culture of hate being normalized, Hollywood is actually really stepping up to help counter that narrative. And I couldn't be more proud of Hollywood. I'm seeing it with CEOs. I'm seeing it with Hollywood. I'm seeing with a lot of people in these powerful positions to create content or sway um, public opinion are really using it for good. And I think that Hollywood takes it very seriously that they what they put out influences culture. And so they're being they're trying to be very responsible with that. There's always outliers, but for the most part. You've been credited with, um, since you've come on, helping GLAAD refocus on its advocacy. Talk to me a little bit about that <laughs> part of the organization. Well, you know, when I started... Glad was in transition because the media landscape had changed so rapidly and and I think the organization wasn't keeping up with the transition that was happening on in media. And so my job was really to look at Silicon Valley and see how we could work with Silicon Valley, the content creators there and create and help move the needle. And so it's often, you know, Glad I don't know how many years ago, but at least a couple of decades ago was the organization that got LGBTQ into Yellow Pages. Some people who are listening to this don't even know what Yellow Pages are, but we used to have phone books, and they used to be delivered to your house. And in the Yellow Pages, there were services, and and LGBTQ services were put in there because of GLAAD petitioning for it. Today, we work with Facebook to make sure that when you want to identify as male, female, gender nonconforming, there's, I think, over... 60 now ways to identify um, both your orientation and your gender identity on Facebook. We help do that. Or we work with Tinder to make sure that it's safe to date out there um, if you're trans, if you're gay. And so we've really taken, you know, 
back in the day, we worked with Barnes and Noble to get an LGBTQ section in bookstores. Now we work with Match.com to make sure that LGBTQ people are safe on their on their various platforms. So making changes internally in an organization, especially when you're new on the job, it's not exactly easy. Um, what are you like as a manager and as a leader? Especially with activists. Oh. <laughs> I mean, you love them <laughs> until they are activisting against you. So, um, no, seriously, I, it's an amazing team. Um, so when I did take over GLAD, when I came in, it was... It wasn't in great shape because of these transitions, and so I was handed by the board a depletion model. For those of you who know what a depletion model is, that is a countdown to the number of days you have till you have to close the doors because you're running out of money. And so I had a 18-month depletion model that I was running on, and um, I have to say the team stepped up in a phenomenal way to make sure that that didn't happen. And within the first year, we were able to close the gap. We were running between a 1.6 and a 2.9 million dollar deficit every year, and we closed that deficit and actually raised our our income by about a million dollars. And we've steadily been growing since. So, and th- I couldn't have done that without the team that we have. Um, I think that as GLAD has grown, we've, you know, there are people who were very specific on what they wanted to work on, but for the overall mission of the organization, um, we've been a, we've been able to attract the top talent, which has been phenomenal, um, and I think that it's been an incredible experience as a manager. I am well. I did my enneagram. I have I have a coach, and so I don't know if anybody knows about enneagrams, but I highly recommend. What, what's an enneagram? Okay, so it's like um, who? It's based on your fear and your desires, and those are your two drivers in life, and they never change. So you you are born, and when you're born, you look at the world and you create a perception of the world and then you build your strategies for the rest of your life based on that initial perception of the world and it really never changes you can evolve and whatnot I turn out I'm a seven I'm an adventurer so I have big ideas visionary I'm very visionary um I get really like the details will are are gonna kill me but what I realized which is amazing is that I surround myself with people who are detail oriented by not, I I wasn't consciously doing that before, but now that I understand my Enneagram and I understand my executive team's Enneagrams, we're all understand each other so much better and how to work with each other. Um, And so I like big ideas. I like big change. I want, I'm here. I'm not here for a long time. I'm here to make a big difference. And that's, that's what gets me out of bed every day. How do you get buy-in on big changes and not create enemies? Excitement and vision. I think, um, I've gotten some of the, the most cynical people to see the opportunity. Um, and so it's through storytelling though. Because I lay it out in a story. I don't just say, we're going to change the Constitution. I say, let's look at historically what's been going on. And if you look at what just happened at the Supreme Court, and and I build the story to the point where I think it becomes their idea, or they believe it's their idea, and I'm fine sharing ideas. Um, 
And they come back to me and they're like, I think we need to change the Constitution. I'm like, ah, that's a brilliant idea. Um, so speaking about big things, you have a big moment coming up. You have the GLAAD Media Awards. Yes. What do they represent for the company? So the GLAAD Media Awards were started, this is going to be the 30th year of them. And just so you know, when we first started, we were a watchdog. And now we, um, what we wanted to do, the founders were so smart. So it was like a lot of hitting people hitting their hands. Don't do that. Don't do this. You did that wrong. And so three years into GLAD's history, they started the GLAD Media Awards as the reward, the carrot for doing great work. Our first Media Awards, which was 30 years ago in New York and LA, Phil Donahue hosted it here and Judith Light hosted it in LA. And it was as big as the room that we're sitting in now. It, not very big. Not big. You know, 40, 50 people. And those two people were the only people that would host it for years. For years, they would be the only people that weren't scared enough to show up and host the gay awards. Um, but what it does is, based on our measurement of television and movies, we give awards for fair and accurate representation. And it's also one of our bigger fundraisers. And so... It garners about 8 billion media impressions um, each year. And what we do very strategically is we put people on that stage who are going to say something really powerful and impactful, we hope, and that will travel. Um, it's really a moment for us to get a narrative out there that we feel is very important. It's interesting for this year's Vanguard Award, you chose to honor such two newcomers. I, <laughs> Tell us about them. Very little known, Beyonce and Jay-Z, yes. Um, when they say something, the global world listens to them. I believe that this is probably the first time that they're taking... I know that this is the first time that they're on an LGBTQ advocacy organization stage. It might be the first time that they're publicly speaking about being LGBTQ or supporting the LGBTQ community. Jay-Z did write a song about his mom, and I, I don't know if he's outwardly spoken about it, but he's definitely signaled in very powerful ways. Um, but them talking about these issues, people follow them all over the world, especially communities of color. And I think that what one of the things that we find is that within communities of color, acceptance lags behind. And so that's really important for us to to make sure that we're getting the right representatives up there to help move culture forward in these in these subcultures within our own country. So the last block, favorite block, it's the lightning round. Oh, great. So we ask you a question, a prompt, and you answer first thing that comes out of your mouth. Okay. Okay. It right. goes fast. Yes. It goes fast. What did you think you were going to be when you grew up? I thought I was going to be a big, powerful CEO. Really? Re like, that's what actually, I wanted. Yeah, I we dreamt of a corner office. I've never heard yeah. that. Yeah, really? that's what I wanted yeah. to be. Okay. Good for you. Okay. <laughs> College major. Sociology, women's studies minor. First job? Working in a factory. Worst job? Working in a factory. <laughs> First, or, sorry, worst professional mistake you've made? Not telling the truth instantly. First phone call when you get good news? My mom. What about bad news? My mom. When is the last time you negotiated for yourself? Two years ago, probably. 
What is your go-to interview question when you're hiring someone? I ask them how they deal in stress. My next question, how do people know when you are stressed? Um, Short. I'm very short. I also say I'm very stressed. I'll say I'll I'll, I'll own it. I try and really be honest and truthful. I appreciate the footnote on that. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you. What drives you? I think change and having fun making change. What is your shameless plug for our listeners? Glad.org. G-L-A-A-D dot org. And please become a member for like $5 a month. It supports all the work that we do. Sergey, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me so much. Thanks for hanging out with us. Join us next week for another episode of Skim from the Couch. And if you can't wait until then, subscribe to our daily email newsletter that gives you all the important news and information you need to start your day. Sign up at theskim.com. That's the S-K-I-M-M dot com. Two M's for a little something extra. 